Good morning. Uh, if you're a guest, my name is Rob. I'm one of the ministers here at New Hope, and uh, you're here on a good Sunday. We're starting a new series. Well, we were uh, multiple weeks in the book of Philippians. I think it was like three plus months. Uh, and now we transition to five Sundays or six sermons, if you include Christmas Eve, um, studying through uh, Advent. What does the Bible um, teach on this season of preparation? both what God's people went through in anticipating the birth of Jesus and what we go through anticipating the final coming of Jesus kind of prepares us for Christmas. Christmas has this great feel to it, and, but there's got to be some depth to it as well. And so as you're turning to um, Isaiah chapter 9, let me explain to you the reasoning behind doing this series was we wanted you as a family, but also as individual families, to experience depth this Christmas season. And so you're going to see the teaching on Sunday morning uh, walk through this. In addition, we've got a Bible reading plan for Advent that starts next Sunday that you can get a card and it'll kind of give you different things you can read each day. Uh, There's family devotions, devotions you can do at home as a family. And uh, as if the 11 o'clock service, which was Ben's idea, wasn't enough, uh, (laughs) Uh, Ben thought, hey, there's nothing else for them to do, too. So we'll go ahead and have them uh, do devotions as well. So the staff, honestly, joyfully, it's not just like giving them a hard time. Uh, Joyfully, we are going to be writing some devotions that are published on the website as well from the ministry team on the staff. So hopefully all of that can help bless you as you uh, prepare for this uh, Christmas season. Um, So to help us study through that today, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 9. And I don't know if you realized this, um, but uh, there are 322 specific prophecies that deal with the birth of Jesus. Now, there are hundreds of other prophecies that deal with Jesus that he fulfilled, but 322 specifically deal with the birth of the Messiah. And he fulfilled all of this, which honestly is mind-boggling, because here's the thing about these prophecies in your Old Testament. They're very specific. Uh, They're very detailed. They're not very general things that you could be like, well, maybe he was it, and maybe he was it. The odds of somebody coming along and fulfilling all of these is just unrealistic until Jesus comes along and sure enough fulfills every one of these prophecies. But the details fascinate. I would encourage you to study this on your own. You might be someone who's like a little skeptical about this. As you jump in and study these 322 specific birth prophecies, you're going to realize, wow, uh, this, the depth here, uh, it's, it's really hard to come away from that and say uh, the birth of Jesus was just a coincidence. Well, no, it was far more than that. So I got to thinking about specific details when you're trying to identify something. I don't know if you knew this, but the CIA, they like detail. And so if you have an informant in the CIA, there's a six-step process to go through to decide, hey, this, this really is who I'm looking for. This person has to actually go and do these six things. Not one of them, not two of them, not four of them, but they have to really do all six. And at that point, you can know this is the person that I'm supposed to be looking for. So I kind of did my own. Just kind of like think about it this way. Let's say you... Uh, we're looking for somebody to identify. You might go through these six steps. The first one is head to downtown Indianapolis dressed like a Christmas elf, uh, pre- preferably Will Ferrell's elf costume. Now, you might say, hey, that's, that's enough. But no, there are other people that do that, uh, believe it or not, and they walk around downtown. Uh, so in addition to that, step two would be then walk three times around Monument Circle and go into the Starbucks on Monument Circle and order a vanilla latte in your elf costume, Okay. That's step two. So we're getting a little bit closer to identifying who this person could be. When the barista, step three, asks for a name, you give him this name. You say, my name is King, Ryan King. And you have to say it just <laughs> like that. Step four, ironically enough, is wait for the barista to stop giggling like you all just did. 
Step five is then throw the latte on the ground and order someone else to pick it up because after all, you are Ryan King. And it's important for them to know that as well as you. And step six, finally, when you take your seat, you declare out loud for all of them to hear, I am finished trying to call Rob out in my sermons because he will always get the last word. At that moment, at that moment, you will, you will, your contact will know this is who I'm looking for. If you're new around here, Ryan's our student minister. He was four for four this year preaching, calling me out in his sermon. So this is, in fact, the last word. So do you see how absurd that is, though? Six different steps. Jesus didn't have six steps. He had 322 322 steps to fulfill, and he fulfilled every single one of them. Your whole Old Testament, some scholars say that 25% of your Old Testament is prophecy, pointing to the Messiah. I mean, God's word is completely full. It's got his stamp all over it. It's as if God is saying to us, Jesus is coming. And the world should watch for the birth of this baby who would be God. This is Advent. Now for us, we understand how that story plays out, and for many of us, We take it for granted, but there's more to Advent than that. For us, we anticipate his final coming when he will right all wrongs. But in order for us to understand this a little bit more, we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 9. Let me give you a little bit of background on this text. Understand that we have to go back in history a little bit. About 700 years before the birth of Jesus in the Middle East, there was a power beginning to grow in the nation known as Assyria. They began to take over all of these other nations. You can read about this in the first eight chapters of the book of Isaiah. As they begin to take over all of these other powers, there begins to get some fear. And so some of these nations that are yet to be conquered form an alliance. They come together and say, if we come together, we might be able to withstand this powerhouse known as Assyria. They approach the king of Jerusalem at the time, a man named Ahaz. And they say to Ahaz, hey, join our alliance so that you can be protected from Assyria. Well, Ahaz says, no, like, no, I don't want to join your alliance. I'm not going to do that. They get a little threatened by that, and they say, if you don't join us, we're going to replace you with a king that will cooperate. Well, this gets him a little bit nervous, and as he's nervous, as he's beginning to panic a little bit and start to think, okay, how am I going to go against this alliance and against Assyria, the king of Assyria shows up. The king of Assyria comes to him and says, hey, join me, and I'll protect you from the alliance. So now he's kind of caught in the middle. He's in the middle, and he's like, hey, uh, the alliance wants me to join them to protect me from Assyria. Assyria says if I join them, they'll protect me from the alliance. I'm not sure what to do, and enter in this prophet Isaiah. Isaiah comes on the scene, and Isaiah says to him, hey, I know you're panicking, and I know you're scared. Here's what God wants you to do. Don't join either side. Don't go with either one of them. Instead, wait on God, and he will come, and he will deliver you. Well, This doesn't give him peace. Instead, he's continuing to be kind of frightened by this. He's still a little bit scared. Isaiah can sense the fear and says to him, okay, well, here's the deal. I'll give you a sign, and this sign will prove to you that what God is saying is that you should wait and not join either one, uh, the alliance or Assyria. You should just kind of wait on him to deliver you. I'm going to give you a sign. Well, then Ahaz says, no, don't give me a sign. I don't want a sign which is fascinating to me because that's why a lot of people don't want to research the history of Christianity. They don't want to read the Bible. Why? Because if they come to find out it's true, then they might have to do something. I might have to obey it. It might actually change something in my life. And so Ahaz says, no, I don't want a sign because if you give me the sign and the sign is true, then I have to obey it. I'd rather not obey it, so just don't give me the sign. And I love Isaiah's response in chapter 7, verse 13. He says this to him. He says, hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? But now, will you also try the patience of God? It's a fascinating response. It's as if he's saying to him, oh, you don't want a sign? Well, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And in chapter 7, he says, here is the sign from God. 
A virgin will give birth to a child. You're thinking, what? How's that going to work out? Now, many scholars will tell you that chapter 8 tells us that that was actually a fulfilled prophecy in Isaiah's day. A baby was, in fact, born, brought about fulfillment. But when you study the language behind this prophecy, you begin to quickly learn this is pointing to something beyond just the physical fulfillment of what was predicted. There is something else going on here. And really, you learn about it in chapter 9. You begin to read Isaiah chapter 9, and the language used to describe this coming child points to something far beyond an earthly child being born. This is something bigger than that. And we're going to see exactly what he's talking about, not all of it, but some of it, in chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. So would you stand with me as we read God's word, and then we will study it together. Here's what it says. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoiced before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of this burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us is born a child, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over the kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You can be seated. So Isaiah comes and he says, here's, here's this thing, there's this prophecy I want to share with you. There's this coming child who's going to deliver all of our problems. And Ahaz, in his panic, can only see the problem directly in front of him. He can't see an ultimate solution to what he thinks is just a temporary problem. And Isaiah's trying to get him to understand this. And the unfortunate part about this is that Ahaz did not heed this advice. He didn't take this advice. And rather than listening and waiting on the Lord, he formed an alliance with Assyria. This alliance backfires on Ahaz as Assyria turns on him and begins to take captive God's people. Ahaz begins to panic in that moment then. And he begins to scramble and he begins to think, okay, I didn't do the alliance, I didn't do this, I didn't wait on the Lord, let me just go around, I'm going to try all these different nations. And he begins to uh, offer worship to all these different gods in hopes that one of them might deliver him. He's losing it. He's just, he's just going anywhere he can to, to, to find some sort of support. One person said he's kind of like the guy in Vegas who goes to Vegas and squanders all of his money, but he's got just a little bit left. And instead of leaving, he says, I've got just a little bit left. I can do this. And he's going to take one more risk to try to win it all back and then some. He's desperate. What ends up happening is he leaves a legacy of pain and suffering. His people are ultimately captured, sent into exile. And the legacy of this king is one that he couldn't wait. Well, here's the thing. You might be thinking, man, how in the world is this Christmas? Like, this is the most anti-Christmas message ever. When you think about this, but I want you to think about it the way that I thought about it. How in the world is a prophecy that wouldn't be fulfilled for 700 more years going to help him in that moment? How in the world is it that, hey, this, this child's going to be born 700 years from now, but he's going to help with the problem that is being formed right now? How is that possible? Because in answering that question, or at least partially answering it this morning, we're also going to be able to answer the question that we would wrestle with is, God, I'm going through pain right now. How does the final coming of Jesus this, this Advent, I'm supposed to be waiting for this king to come back for me. How in the world is that going to help me now? You know how hard the season I'm walking through is right now? You know how painful what I'm experiencing right now is? And you want me to, with anticipation, say the solution to my problem right now is Jesus is coming back? How is that possible? 
How am I supposed to cling to that? This is the question that's asked. So what I want to do is take this passage that's really deep. Many people take weeks and weeks to just study this passage. Today, we, we don't have that kind of time. So I want to narrow it down. I'm going to focus on one description in Isaiah 9 of Jesus. And I think in focusing on that one description, we'll get a little bit of an answer to this question that will prepare us for this Advent season starting this next week. And the, 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 what I'm going to bring your attention to is the way that Isaiah describes Jesus by saying he's a wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. But we're going to look at it in reverse because you're going to learn two things. With counselor comes this idea of wisdom. And then with wonder comes this idea of the greatness of God. And so we're going to look at those two things. And I think it will answer a little bit of what they were experiencing and what we experience at Advent as well. I want you to think about God as a counselor. Now, when you go to a counselor, you're seeking wisdom for a couple of reasons. A counselor is somebody who's going to help you see something that you can't see. You've come to the end of yourself, the end of the road, the end of the rope, however, whatever analogy you want to use, you are, you're, you are empty of wisdom. And you're saying, I don't know what to do in this situation, circumstance, or season. So I need somebody else's wisdom to help me see with a little bit more clarity what it is that's going on in my life. And so you come to them and you kind of seek some wisdom. Well, this is really the message of Christmas. The message of Christmas is the wisdom of the world had run dry. They couldn't solve their problems on their own. And so God had to come and bring to them what they could not produce on their own. As a matter of fact, John chapter 1 describes Jesus as a light coming into darkness. So in this world, the darkness had overtaken the light to the point where the darkness couldn't solve their own problems. And so now the light comes into the darkness. And I find it fascinating for a couple of reasons. One, the world is so receptive at Christmas. I can't fully understand why. I think I can kind of get what they're, where they're coming from, but without seeing what Christmas is really all about. Do you know that people are far more likely to accept an invitation to your Christmas Eve service than they are to any other moment in the, in the year? There's something about the Christmas season that softens the heart of the skeptical world. Just for a little bit, just for a moment. And I think they like it because it's about joy and it's about hope and it's about uh, traditions and fun and presents and, tr- and all these different things that we have at Christmas time. But when you really think about Christmas, it's, I think it's pretty offensive. Because the message of Christmas is that God stepped into this world because the wisdom of this world failed. Because the world was incapable of doing and solving the problems that they had on their own. Think, think about it this way. When I'm at home, um, if, if I'm upstairs and I'm studying, okay, and I'm, I'm kinda, but I'm on dad duty. You ever been there? Got to work on something, but you're, you're, you also have to watch the kids. So if I'm upstairs and I'm watching the kids, I can tell you inevitably how things are going to go, okay? Like every single time in our house. It starts out, I'll be like, hey, you guys play and do your thing. I'm going to be in the, in the office studying or up, up here just kind of working on some things, getting ready. Then what happens is the joyful noises of my children start out. And it's a great sound, right? But in our house, those joyful noises don't last long when they're not being supervised. And you might be thinking, not in our house. It's joyful all the time. Well, bless your heart. Uh, for the rest of us... <laughs> That joyful sound of the kids playing begins to kind of take a shift. And it goes from joy to kind of bickering and complaining, bickering and complaining to yelling and screaming to fighting. Uh, That's how things usually go down. Well, then a series of things will happen. The first thing is I tell them, hey, work this out on your own. All right, share the toy. Let someone else pick a show that you're going to watch. Take a breather. Do whatever you got to do. Solve this on your own. Well, when that doesn't work, when that fails and they continue to fight, then I send my word to them via a messenger. Somebody comes up, they receive, if you don't stop this, this is what's going to happen. 
You go down there and you tell your siblings, this is how things are going to go. And if they don't listen, they're going to be in trouble. Now, again, maybe that's only my house. So then this sibling takes the message down to his other siblings or her other siblings, and they relay the message from their dad. Here's how things should go. Now, when and if, but really when, that fails, at that point, I then need to bring my presence into their chaos. And I come downstairs into their mess and bring them the peace that they obviously can't figure out on their own. This is Advent. Jesus, God, came into the other room, so to speak, to bring about a peace that we just could not seem to produce on our own. This is what's going on when we think about Advent. And the message, we don't like to hear it. Like Ahaz, he knew better. God had sent Ahaz's word through a messenger named Isaiah. And he said, this is what you need to do. This is how things need to work. He sent us his word through multiple messengers. We had God's word, God's instructions, and we just couldn't seem to follow it. So eventually God said, I now need to step down into this mess. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Didn't, you can't obey it on your own. I'm going to come down. I'm going to step into this mess. And some of the wisdom from this incredible counselor that is hard to obey is honestly waiting for him to come. It's in that waiting period. When we know what we should do and we know he's coming, can't seem to wait for it. Ahaz struggled with waiting. To him, to Ahaz, in Isaiah chapter 9, to wait on the Lord was foolishness, not wisdom. To wait on the, on the Lord to the surrounding nations was foolishness. What are you doing, Ahaz? That's not a wise thing to do. And so Ahaz forms alliances. But for us, it's just as hard. Many of us are walking through a difficult season. Can I, just, can I tell you this? This past week was really, really heavy for me. I love it. I love my job. But there are weeks that are heavier than others. And the, the tail end of this week got very, very heavy pastorally. Talked to a lot of people. One of our elders unexpectedly lost a parent this week. And so I'm on the phone last night praying and talking to him. Other people were in the hospital. We're, it, it's really difficult. It was a heavy week. And in the midst of those heavy seasons and circumstances, when we are told, wait, he's coming. He's coming. Just wait. The Lord is coming. It gets really hard to wait. I don't know about you. I hate waiting. I've always hated it. Like this is one of those sermons that you're thinking like way easier to preach than live out. My wife would tell you I am the worst person at waiting for anything ever. She says he's never surprised me because he always tells me the surprise before the surprise. Like I just can't seem to keep anything from her. I buy her a gift. Why waste the time wrapping it? Here you go. Like, I'm just excited for her to have it, right? It's so cool. As a matter of fact, just this past week, my daughter had a birthday party, and we had got her this gift that she wanted, and I was so excited, and Sarah's like, hey, her birthday's Monday. Let's wait and give it to her on Monday. I'm like, no way. Let's give it to her now. Her friends are here. She's got to have it now, and she's like, no, it's not even wrapped. I'm like, wrap? Who cares? Give it to her now, and, and so her mom runs up and wraps it really quick, and we sure enough gave it to her right then, and I was so excited and pumped, and now we're like, what are we doing on Monday? I don't know. We'll figure it out. That was awesome. Uh, <laughs> I hate waiting. I remember two specific instances in my life where I just couldn't wait for things. One was when uh, I got engaged to my wife, Sarah. We dated for three months before I proposed. Okay, that's not the advice for everybody, uh, but when you know, you know. When I saw her, the first time I saw her, I knew. It took me a little bit of time to convince her, but it worked out. No kidding. It took her a little bit of time. All right, but she's, we're good. Uh, <laughs> we made it. But when I knew that I wanted to marry her, I had a friend who, was, uh, who did, was, worked in jewelry. He let me design the ring, and so I designed the ring, and it just so happened the day I was going to pick up the ring was also the day her dad was in Florida, and so I went, almost wet my pants. I asked him for permission. Uh, really, come on, David. If you don't know this, David is my father-in-law. Pretty scary dude until you get to know him. I, I was terrified. <laughs> Got his permission, 
picked up the ring three hours later, proposed. Like, I couldn't wait. So I literally got the ring, asked permission, and proposed to her in about an eight, nine-hour period. I just couldn't wait. I was so excited. And then she says, we're going to have about a seven-month engagement. And I thought, seven months? Who, seven months? Who waits seven months for this? I'm not, I don't want to wait for this. Let's get married tomorrow. She's like, no. She's like, we have to plan the wedding. We have to get invites out. We have to pick venues. We have to get everything kind of put together. I'm like, I don't want to wait for that. I want what I want. <laughs> Let's just get married now. And she knew better. But the same thing is true in our relationship with God. It just, it really is. Like, God, I don't care what you're doing in me. I don't care the character that you're developing me. I want the end product. I don't want to wait to get there. I see where I'm headed. God, I just want you to give me what I need, and I don't care about the process. I don't want to wait for it. And like my wife, God's like, no, there's so much work that needs to be done in the waiting. I would tell you that God does his best counseling in us during seasons of waiting. He begins to minister to us and transform us. The other time where I just struggled waiting was four different times when my wife was pregnant with our kids. I couldn't wait to be a dad. I, I grew up, my dad wasn't, I, I'd lost my dad when I was a, a young kid, and I was like, I just want to rewrite this narrative. I just can't wait to be a dad. I'm so excited to be a dad. And I don't want to wait for it. I'm just so pumped. Now, her waiting was a lot more difficult than mine in that season. I get that. But at the same time, I'm just like, man, I can't wait to be a dad. And I, as I reflect on it, I think to myself, the last thing I ever would have wanted for my kids to be born before they were. Because it was in the waiting that God was knitting them together. It was in the season of waiting that God was doing a powerful, incredible work. And at just the perfect time, they arrived. Because God's not late. Ever late. And all of his writings, you know, the Apostle Paul, for all the prolific writing he did, he only referenced the birth of Jesus once. It's found in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. The Apostle Paul says these words, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That phrase, fullness of time, is a Greek phrase that I think is better translated this way. The better translation would be at just the right moment. Now consider the depth of that. In all of history prior to it, in all of history since that moment, Paul is saying, God is saying, at just the perfect moment, in all of history, at the perfect moment, God sent his son. There was not a better time. God was not late. God was not delaying. God did not make a mistake. It was the perfect time that God brought about what he wanted. So I would tell you, if you are struggling with waiting on the Lord, as many of us do, Paul would tell us, Isaiah would tell us, that God has got things fully under control, and he will bring his work to completion at just the right moment, just the right time. But you see, Isaiah doesn't call him just a counselor, though he is a counselor. He says he's a wonderful counselor, and there's uh, multiple different things you could say about this, but that word wonderful is something we skip over oftentimes. We just think wonderful means good. He's a really good counselor. God's a good counselor. There's so much more to that, but in order to help us understand the depth of it, I thought, well, let's see. Why is he wonderful? What makes him such a wonderful counselor? What, what about him makes him so great? And I thought, well, let's look at the other descriptions in the text. Let the Bible teach the Bible. Isaiah says he's a wonderful counselor. Why? Because he's a mighty God. He's a mighty God. That word mighty in Hebrew is gibor, and it means a valiant warrior, someone who overcomes the odds, someone who never loses, someone who wins the day. He's a wonderful counselor because in his counseling, he reminds you that he's a mighty God. That no matter what you're going through, we win. 
That at the end of the story, no matter what, he's the mighty God. He's the only God who will overcome all of the odds. The text says he's an everlasting father. He's an everlasting father. This means that he's not just a demigod or a second-tier partial God or a part-time God. He's an everlasting father. I know I say demigod and you think of Maui. I get that. Get it out of your mind. Uh, I shouldn't have even used that. I just read it again. I thought third service, I won't say it. I sure enough said it. But he... He's an everlasting father. What that means is this mighty God, this overcomer, is also your dad who's invited you into this really great relationship with him. He's a great and wonderful counselor. Why? Because he's a mighty God, but he's an everlasting father who will never fail you. He says he's a, he's a wonderful counselor because he's also the prince of peace. And that's the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom means full economic, spiritual, physical flourishing and peace. It's one of the most beautiful words in all the Bible. He's the Prince of Peace, meaning he is coming to not just restore you personally, but all of creation to bring about a peace. So what that means is this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting father, this Prince of Peace, he is going to come and he's going to get rid of all poverty everywhere in all the world. He's going to get rid of injustice and violence and war and natural disasters. But like God's people of old, waiting for the first coming, waiting for this Messiah to come and deliver them, we too have to wait for the final coming of our King. And it's in the waiting that God does his best work. Let me help you understand it this way. The first advent brought about our relief from sin. It's the second advent that will bring about our relief from suffering. The waiting's hard. See, when you fill out those connect cards on Sunday morning, you put the prayer request on it, we really do pray. And so just, just this week, I pulled up last week's, just last Sunday's prayer requests. And I thought, I'm going to read through these prayer requests again and I'm going to see what is it that Jesus is coming to undo, just from our church family. So, so hear from your church family what Jesus will come and undo at the final coming, what we long for and wait for. He is coming to rid the world of cancer altogether, to rid it of skin disease, toe infections, and back pain, everything. He's coming to overcome the problem of children who don't have a home. He's coming to relieve us of a diagnosis that will ruin our plans and our dreams. He's coming to undo altogether anxiety, depression, and suicide. He's coming to undo physical and emotional abuse. And he's coming to undo death. Yes, your death. If you are in Christ, he will undo your death, but he will also take away the sting of death that makes Christmas sometimes a little bit harder to endure. But until then, we wait. And it's in the waiting that God does some of his greatest work. You know what my favorite part of the wonderful counselor description is? Is that Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit in very similar language. Look at how he describes the role of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, verse 26, he says, But the helper, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you things. And he will bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. He will put in your mind all the words that you need. When your wisdom is run dry, he will bring back to life the words that I've told you. Because of this, he says in verse 27, Peace I leave you. My peace I'm giving to you, but it's not like the peace of the rest of the world. So let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You have heard me say this to you, and Jesus might reiterate, I always keep my promises. I am going, but I'm coming back. But until then, we wait. But we don't wait alone. If you've been baptized into Christ, you have this spirit living in you, this counselor to remind you in your darkest, driest seasons of the soul that he is good, even when life is not so good to you. 
we wait. We have the solution to the first advent. We wait with great anticipation for the second advent, and all the while we have his presence in us. But the question we have to wrestle with is, is that enough? I mean, is it really enough for us? Maybe your health has failed. Maybe your dreams have shattered. I I don't know. Maybe your relationships have fallen apart, and maybe you've lost someone too soon. And I know in a room like this, I know because I love my job that I've sat in a lot of living rooms with a lot of pain. But I can tell you that for 2,000 years, people who have suffered have looked up and testified, he is enough. And it's worth the wait. Because he will be back and he will make all things new. So if you're hurting today, my prayer is that you would let us talk to you, to pray with you, to explain to you why Jesus can be enough. That's up to you. Let's pray. Father, you really are so good. And what comes to my mind as we come before you is to thank you so much for the promise of this Christmas season, of this Advent, of this final coming. Would you create in us an anticipation, a joy, because you always keep your word. And I can't help but think of Revelation 21, where you told us, Father, that you will come and wipe every tear from our eye, every tear we've cried, every pain we've experienced. You'll undo it all. You'll eradicate death, and there'll be no more death and pain. And we will walk with you, and you will be our God. And you will come, and you will make all things new. But God, until that day, sometimes the waiting can be hard. Would you remind us today that you're with us, that you're living in us, and that you are a wonderful counselor? We ask you for this in Jesus' name.